Hello and welcome to Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today has been a soldier, a landscape gardener, a motorcycle messenger and a car mechanic. He also taught English in Colombia and he was chosen as one of Granta's 20 Best of Young British Novelists in 1993. His fourth novel, Captain Corelli's Mandolin, was published the following year, winning the Commonwealth Writers' Prize. And that book, and much of his subsequent work, hit the bestseller lists and often still to be found there. This conversation was recorded in Gestart at the World of Words Festival, or Wow Gestart. Louis, we're speaking here in Switzerland, and you probably hear some church bells and certainly lots of cheeping birds in the background. It's incredibly beautiful. And I wonder if your name is at all Swiss. My name is not at all Swiss. It's from Normandy in France. There's a little town called Bernier-sur-Mer, which is between Aramanche and Luxembourg. And uh, my family used to be the local aristocracy. Yeah, but, but my, my particular ones quit because they were Huguenots. And Louis XIV started persecuting them, uh, mainly because he wanted their money, pretending to be persecuting heretics, of course. So, so they, my, I had a particular ancestor called Jean-Antoine de Bernier, who was a soldier for Louis XIV, and he, he deserted the French army and joined the army of William of Orange. So he, he, he turned up in Northern Ireland and fought at the Battle of the Boyne, and afterwards the king, King William, gave him land in Northern Ireland. It's called the Williamite Plantation. So my French ancestors are buried in Lisbon Cathedral. And that military tradition continues because, of course, you are from a, a military family. Yes, we were the kind of people who are either clergy or military, so the, the, mostly soldiers. One very famous admiral, who I'm proud to say fought at the Battle of Navarino for the liberty of Greece, and uh, then captured two slave ships and freed 500 slaves. So I'm very proud of him. But the others were, were mostly soldiers, and then there was one quite prominent clergyman, you know, who, who was a writer. He, he wrote, The Duties of a Christian People Under Times of divine, in, divine Affliction, I think it's called, yeah. And it's very, very dull. <laughs> <laughs> you went to Sandhurst yourself, did, but yeah. didn't like it. It's not so much I didn't like it, it's that, it's that the army and I had a radical personality clash. I realised that I couldn't stand taking orders and neither did I want to give them. It was also really, it was towards the end of the hippie period when people like me thought that they were pacifists and you couldn't really reconcile that with being in the army. And the Northern Irish Troubles were going on, which was a really dirty war. I didn't want to be part of a dirty war, you know, it's not proper soldiering. I'm not a pacifist now, I'd like to kill almost everyone now, <laughs> but... um. I really very, very much enjoyed all the hurtling about, you know, in and out of ditches and assault courses and learning how to throw hand grenades and fire machine guns. I mean, that was fantastic. I loved it. But um, in the end, I actually wasn't even physically fit enough. I, I, got, I have a problem called exercise-induced asthma. So when we had to do these very long route marches with rifles and backpacks, I simply couldn't hack it. You know, a soldier actually has to be fit to an Olympic standard pretty much, and I, I couldn't do it. Mm. I mean, that came off the back of quite an unhappy experience at school. My prep school was a terrible place. Uh, one of the headmasters was a, a pedophile and the other was a sadist and possibly a pedophile as well. And the, the whole atmosphere of the place was to do with, you know, emotional and physical violence. There was a terrible problem with bullying. The education, I have to say, was absolutely superb. But it was horrendous to be sent away at the age of eight into that kind of vicious environment. And I, I think it ruined my relationship with my mother. 
I only worked that out a few years ago that it must have been I think my relationship with her was difficult because I never forgave her for allowing that to happen uh, but, but the school after that was, was perfectly humane and reasonable I've got no complaints about that school at all except that I would rather have been at home Do you think that your mother was sad that she sent you away? She said she was she said she was, but you know, I wonder what the hell she was doing when we weren't there. I know she she did things like riding for the disabled, and it, it puzzled me that she was doing so much for other people's kids. So tell me about all the jobs you did after Sandhurst. Well, my, my main project was avoiding having to wear a tie. I sort of regret not working in an office now because I realise that people who work in offices actually have a lot of fun, mostly because of having affairs with each other. So I missed out on all that, which is a real shame. But I, I, I worked as a landscape gardener, uh, building things in stone. I taught philosophy evening classes because I did my degree in philosophy. I worked on a ranch in South America where I was teaching the ranch kids in the morning and working on the, you know, with the horses and the cattle in the afternoons. I've been a, a mechanic in a Morris Minor garage for a year. I know everything about Morris Miners. And I've worked in bookshops, I've been a carpenter. But for many years, uh, from my late 20s onwards, I was, I was a school teacher. And th that ended up with me um, working in a truancy unit. We actually had a little school in Battersea for kids who wouldn't go to school, which is a totally crazy idea mm. because half of them never arrived in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> so after about three years of that, I was earning the same by writing as I was teaching, so I thought some other poor sod can have my job. Uh, so let's let's go back to the beginning of the writing because of course a lot of this was sparked by your trip to Colombia. You mm. discovered the land of magical realism and indeed Marquez himself. He was a great influence. Marquez was a great influence. After my stay in Colombia, when I was still full of the weirdness of the place, I didn't feel British again for oh, probably 15 years after I came back from Colombia. Uh, especially I went to Manchester University and Manchester in the 1970s was the most grim and depressing mm. place That's, Columbia isn't grim and depressing even if it's brutal but any, anyway my little sister rang me up and she said she said I've read this incredible author and you've got to read him and he's Colombian and he's called Gabriel Garcia Marquez <laughs> and of course that was a hundred years of solitude and uh, so for most of my 20s and early 30s I didn't read anybody but Latin Americans um, the whole lot, even whether they were good or not. Of course, many of them weren't. Mm. But I had this idea that if it was Latin American, it must be amazing, and I, I didn't drop that delusion until quite late. So your first published books w were your Latin American trilogy? Yes, they were. They were. Um, my Latin American experience festered in my imagination all through my 20s, and as I said, I was reading nobody but Latin Americans. And so when you're a writer, what goes in is what comes out. So because I've been reading so much magic realism and political realism written in a very jaunty, slightly Baroque style, that's what came out when I started writing. And I was, I was perversely lucky, as I often am, that I had a, a very bad motorcycle crash and I was in plaster for six months. And I couldn't really do anything. My, my Irish girlfriend dumped me because she didn't want to look after me. She went back to Ireland. My landlady had a nervous breakdown, so it was, it was scary leaving my room. And I thought I was really stuck at home, and I, I used that time to write my first novel, which turned into three. And after three, I'd had enough, actually. I, was, I had become bored with the magic realism. It made plotting too easy. It's actually a terrible cheat. And, and so I, I kept the same style, and I kept the political realism, and that, that resulted in Captain Corelli, which I think was an advance. 
Just looking at Colombia now, we're talking just a couple of days after the election, uh, yes. and I wonder what you feel about the direction that the country will go in now. Well, they've voted in a left-winger for the first time. But I think that's a sign of greater political health. In the past, in the, in the distant past, the government used to be divided between the Liberals and the Conservatives. I mean, neither of which were particularly Liberal or Conservative. They were basically just families of oligarchs. And it, it's a great improvement when you've got an election that can yield an unexpected result. And it, it might be, you know, if, if Salvador Allende had remained the president of Chile, it's quite likely he would have lost the next election. The Americans didn't need to depose him. He would have lost the next election, probably. I think that might happen now with this government. They're, they'll have an honest bash at it, not do very well, and maybe lose the next election. Or if they make, make a good fist of it, they'll get elected again, and that, that can only be a good thing. But you know, the, the trouble with the left has always been that it's a circular firing squad. You know, it always breaks up into factions. It, it's a bit like religions as well, you know, mm. where, where, where they all end up sniping at each other rather than trying to, rather than actually forging ahead with some kind of common cause. That's what frightens me, that it, it might break up into left-wing factions and who all want slightly different versions. Running alongside your writing is, is music, of course. Yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. I started off... Well, you know, when I, when I was at, in my teens, the only way you could get a girlfriend was to play a guitar or have a car and preferably both. And my, my, bro I went, my brother-in-law helped me buy my first guitar, which I still have. It cost me 17 pounds when I was 17. And um, I started off wanting really to be Paul Simon and Bob Dylan and Tom Paxton and things like that. But as the years went by, I got more and more interested in, you know, classical music and flamenco and ragtime and all sorts of things. And n nowadays, I, I, I play a lot of different instruments. I mean, probably my best one is the flute, to be honest. I got to grade six before I got cheesed off with all the scales. And I, 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 I regularly perform either, either my own songs or other traditional and classical music from all over the world. And so how does that music work with your writing? Because obviously we all know your probably most famous book, Captain Corelli's Mandolin. Yeah. Do you play the mandolin, firstly? I always had one because every guitar player does, but I never played it much until I was writing that book. And I, I played it more and more to get myself in the mood, mm. whilst I was also listening to a lot of classical mandolin music while I was writing. Mm. And I, I have crazes. At the moment, I am in a mandolin craze, but it's my first one for a few years. I do love the mandolin. It, it sort of became a, an albatross around my neck, though, that people expected me to turn up with it mm. all the time, you know. I read, I read some comment in a newspaper, like, Louis de Bernier can't turn up to a festival without his mandolin. I thought, OK, that's the end of that one then. <laughs> <laughs> well, because, of course, that book was such an enormous success. And, and I mean, do you feel a, a sort of victim of it? I mean, certainly, I think Cephalonia seems to be a, a slight victim of it. I don't think it is a victim, to, really, because w without the tourism industry, they would have no infrastructure. As it is, they all have to leave the island in the winter because there's no jobs. There are no jobs in the site otherwise. So I think a lot of people are actually rather grateful for their infrastructure. But tourism is a pact with the devil always, isn't it? Mm. You need them because you need their money, but at the same time, they really wreck your environment. So I don't feel that guilty. I mean, the, the, um, the head of the Hotels Association rang me up a few years ago and left a message on my answer machine. It was, hey, Mr. Louis. Thank you, thank you, thank you. 25%. Suspiros <laughs> Yes. But uh, 
yeah, so I'm, I'm, I, I don't feel too guilty about that at all. I mean, Captain Corelli's mandolin must have changed your life. Yes, I mean, it's thanks to Captain Corelli's mandolin that I have a house that I don't have to worry about money. I'm, it was an albatross for a long time in the sense that it was almost impossible to write anything afterwards because people wanted me to write the same book again but different. Mm. You know, you, you actually can't follow up a book like that. But ten years later, I came out with Birds Without Wings, which I, which I think is actually a much better book. I'm much prouder of that than I am of Captain Corelli. Mm. So uh, I, I had a period when it was really worrying, thinking that, oh, maybe it's all over. I'm, I'm at the height of my fame, but it's all over, and that was not a nice feeling. Yeah. Uh, what came after that? Well, I did two little books, but then the, my next big novel was Birds Without Wings, which, which in Turkey is, is regarded by lots of people as their war and peace. Mm. I mean, it, it's a, the most extraordinary novel, and it does really go very much into the effects of war. And I wonder how you feel now looking at, at Turkey, which isn't actually at war, but is certainly in a really precarious situation. Turkey is at war. It, basically, it's at war in Syria against uh, Kurdish fighters who, 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 want, who want autonomy. They're there, with, they're stuck in an uneasy relationship with the Russians, for example. It's not a good situation. I, I'm not, I am not happy with the way Turkey is at the moment. I mean, President Erdogan has been imprisoning judges, soldiers, you know, writers. Mm. My, my Turkish friends are clearly afraid to say what they really think in their emails to me. You can't get a an straight answer to a, a political question anymore. You know, it's, it's a frightening environment. And he, he's not a democrat. He's, he's a democrat in the sense that he likes being elected. But he's not, a, he's not a liberal democrat. He doesn't believe in the democratic freedoms at all. No. I sort of feel that I'm edging back towards Greece, to be honest. Um, Red Dog. Well, first of all, I really want to talk about the relationship between film and writing, oh, because yeah. both Captain Corelli's Mandolin and then Red Dog was a film too. It was Australia's second most successful film after Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> but it, it didn't get international distribution because it, it wasn't Hollywood enough, mm. you know. It's... Um, the film industry so it's run by madmen it really is they're not interested in quality they're just interested in celebrity mm. so it was a fabulously good film i don't know if you saw it oh the soundtrack was 1970s australian rock music oh, uh, it was extraordinary you know my, my children adore the soundtrack and i do as well the film was sentimental which i think it would probably have to be if it's about a dog to be honest but i loved it i i love the film i i can watch it any number of times i think when you watch that film, do you feel like that's your work or that's something that you created but now it has its own life? And, and how does that also go when we talk about Captain Corelli's Mandolin? People think I'm hostile to the film of Captain Corelli's Mandolin, but actually I'm not totally hostile. I, I wish I had agreed to write the script. I didn't think the script was that great. And Nicolas Cage is a great actor, but maybe not the right one for Captain Corelli. But the soundtrack of that film was fabulous. Penelope Cruz was fabulous. John Hurt was extremely good. And when, when I see the film now, I think it's getting better with time. Mm. But Red Dog, I was very happy with, with everything that the producer and the director did with it. I, I couldn't have done it better. I thought, actually, it's one of those very few occasions when the film is better than the book. Um, let's go now to Yugoslavia and Ooh. a partisan's daughter. Yes, a partisan's daughter. I, I shared a house with a, a Serbian woman when I was working at the Morris Minor Garage. It was a derelict house in North London where I think I was paying £5 a month because it had no roof. <laughs> and Slivica was living there. Her, her bedroom was a sort of devastating avalanche of pink. 
And she, when I got back from work, exhausted from the Morris Minor garage, she would sit there chain-smoking across the gas fire, telling me all these stories about her life. She claimed that she'd been a prostitute or, you know, working in a hostess club and that she'd earned so much money that she'd never have to work again. And what she really wanted was to be a poet, so she'd read me her poetry in Serbian, in Serbo-Croat. And after I left that house, I decided I had to write all her stories down, but before I forgot her and her stories and her voice. And so I wrote, I wrote them all down in my first term when I was supposed to be doing teacher training. And uh, seven drafts later, it became a partisan's daughter. And did she read it? No, I, I called back at the place and she was gone. But there, there were lots of mail on the doormat, all obviously to her, but with different names. So you don't know who she really was? I don't know who she really was. But at the point, it doesn't really, She was a kind of Sherazade. She, she was a great storyteller. She was sort of like the ancient mariner, you know, who, who pins you down and won't let you go until you've listened. She was quite terrifying. I mean, I suspected that she probably had a dagger in her handbag. (laughs) I mean, most of this writing has been based, in fact, all of it, abroad. But then you come to short stories and notwithstanding, which Mm. is wonderful and very much very English and really quite autobiographical. Mm. Or is it? Tell us. It is. I I owe that book to a Frenchman called Jacques, who I met in the south of France. I went to a salon littéraire, you know, where the... The intellectuals all get drunk and talk bollocks on television. It's great fun. And pretentious bollocks. But Jacques, Jacques said to me, you know, uh, j'adore l'Angleterre and I love England. And I said, I said, why? And he said, because it's so exotic. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, l'Angleterre, c'est un asile immense. England is an enormous loony bin. I thought, my God, he's right. My village was a loony bin. All my neighbours were eccentric in one way or another, and I, I thought, OK, it is time to see my own country with a Frenchman's eyes, so to speak, and, and, and write about, you know, life in an English village back at that sort of time. Apparently, the village where I wrote, um, that I wrote it about, they get people calling in at the village shop saying, is this notwithstanding? That's rather nice. You know, and then they've, they interviewed me at length about the old days, which made me realise that how old I am. Because I, I remembered all these things which, which had been forgotten by other people. How old are you? I think I'm 67. You lose track after a while. Tell us some of the stories that were in there. <laughs> What's your favourite story from Notwithstanding that's about yourself? If you want stories about myself, there's a story about a little boy who brings up um, a, a rook, you know, a, an abandoned rook. And I, that's something that I did when I was 15, except it was a jackdaw. And I, I have a rookery in my garden in Norfolk, and every year my son and I bring up the ones that fall out of the nests. So that they're our babies, and they're, they're very, very charming, funny, intelligent creatures. I would never shoot one, you know, now that I know them so well. So that, that's really quite autobiographical. There's, there's one about a little boy who catches an immense pike in a pond. That's autobiographical. It was me who caught the pike. And I suffered all those feelings that the little boy does feel when he has the fish on the bank and knows he has to kill it. But my favourite story is the one about the, the naked general. It was called The Happy Death of the General, that story. I used to read that regularly at um, festivals, and it always makes the audience cry. Oh. <laughs> Which is the opposite of what you do when you talk, because you're such a funny, funny man. Oh, thank you. Funny peculiar? <laughs> Well, perhaps a little Somebody of that. Somebody told me the other day that I was eccentric, but obviously because I'm me, I don't know. 
How do you know how mad you are? Because you, you don't know. <laughs> Other people are too polite to tell you you're bonkers normally. What was, <laughs> what was Blue Dog? Blue Dog came about because Nelson Wass, who made the film about Red Dog, um, fell in love with the dog, Coco, who was playing the part, and he adopted Coco after the film was over. And uh, he got rather obsessed with Coco, actually, but in the end, Coco died young, and Nelson decided he wanted to make a prequel to Red Dog. So he got, he got somebody to write a script, which was actually quite good. Nothing wrong with the script at all. And Nelson said to me, how about you turning the script into a novel? And I said I would, as long as I could change it as much as I wanted, because I thought I could actually improve on the story a bit. So, so that's, what, that's what it is. It's my improved version of the story and the script. That's unusual, isn't it, going from script to, to book? Very unusual, yeah. And it's, I think it's actually got the best scene in it that I've ever written, when a little boy is so jealous of his teacher's boyfriend that, that he stabs the boyfriend with a pencil. I just love that scene. Yeah, that's not in the film. You come back to war again, and in fact, your your grandfather really mm. in the Daniel Pitt trilogy. Tell yeah. us about this. Um, my grandfather made a very poor marriage. It didn't work out. He, he married my grandmother was still actually in mourning for her fiance who was killed in 1915. He was an American volunteer. He didn't even have to be there. She married my grandfather in 1918, and he had to pretend to be religious. She had to pretend to like tennis. He pretended to like art and. You know, it all it all fell apart, and he steadily drifted away over a period of decades, and um, he disappeared entirely in the 1950s. But then, uh, really, when he was 96 years old and freshly dead in the Rocky Mountains, we had a somebody knocked on the door, and it was a solicitor to tell us that he'd just died. My father was astounded because he hadn't seen anything from his father since wow, just after the Second World War. So I, I went to Canada to try and find out his version of what had happened from, by talking to his friends, and also to come back with some of his possessions. And that, that sparked off, this was in the 90s, and that, that sparked off this trilogy, which I had been thinking about ever since the 1990s, planning in my head. And I, I finally got down to it, you know, when my sort of intellectual literary space was clear. Mm -hmm. And it became the Daniel Pitt trilogy. And I felt I felt really quite free to alter my family history as much as I wanted because it's fiction. It's not it's not the truth. But consequently, my sisters are now very muddled up as to what really happened, and I'm the only one who knows because mm. they think that what I put in the novel is what happened, but it's not. You know, um, for example, my grandfather was an observer in the Royal Flying Corps. He was the one with the machine gun behind the pilot. But I've turned him into a fighter pilot because an ace is more glamorous, is it not? So I, I altered many things, just using uh, my family history as a, as a very basic scaffold. Mm. I wanted it to go from about 18, well, from King Edward's coronation up until about 1980. So uh, that's what it is. And I'm, I, I'm actually very proud of it. I, th I think it has the potential to be a really good TV series, for example. I'm really interested in, in the practice of writing as a trilogy, does that happen from the outset or do you get to the end of a book and think, well, I've got to finish this now and, and actually another two just come naturally? Well, my, my Latin American trilogy was originally supposed to be five books. I had them all lined up. But the fourth one was going to be a satire on um, a Latin American dictator. 
and at exactly the time when I was about to write it, all of the Latin American republics were democratized, with the exception of Cuba. And I thought, oh, the time's gone, it's too late. There's no point in satirizing what's gone. So, so I had to find another topic, and of course that resulted in Captain Corelli's Mandolin. But th the Daniel Pitt trilogy was conceived as a trilogy right from the start. I always knew it had to be three. There is a publishing problem with trilogies, in that lots of people will buy the first volume, fewer people will buy the second, and almost no one will buy the third. Mm. It is a problem, you know, publishers really don't like it. And um, I don't know why that is. Um, I suppose some people are just not sufficiently interested to want to get the next instalment. Although surely it works the other way around. People love your, your first book and they just read everything you do. I don't know if you've ever had this experience of reading a really, really brilliant novel and then not remembering who the author was. That occasionally happens to me. Uh, so if it happens to me, I think it must happen to other people. Mm. They, they might have read The Dust That Falls From Dreams and sort of forgotten that it was by me and so n not sort of twigged when the next volume came yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> you also write poetry, of course. Yeah, poetry is my first uh, greatest love, I think. I originally intended to be a poet when I first started sending stuff to an agent. And she came back with, don't send me poetry. I don't like poetry. I don't get it. There's no money in it. Send me prose. So I more or less accidentally became a novelist instead. <laughs> I, I'm quite grateful to her because at that age, I didn't really understand how poetry works technically. And uh, about 10 years ago, I, I just thought, okay, let's get to grips with this. And I actually learned how to do metrics properly, for example. And that's an incredible help. I can instantly spot now why a line is clunky mm. or clumsy. I, I didn't have that technical grasp when I was young. So I, I think my agent did me a favor. How do you learn metrics? Well, I started off with a funny little book, which is really a loo book by Mark Forsyth called The Elements of Eloquence. And that was quite enlightening. And that, then I bought this enormous encyclopedia of, 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 of versification. Patterson, you know, that Scottish poet, has written a good book about, um, about poetry, how to write poetry and stuff. That, and even St Stephen Fry wrote a book called The Ode Less Travelled, which is about all the different kinds of verse. And that's really quite a good book. You know, there is a, a lot of information. Mm. But the best thing is this massive encyclopedia, which I've got. I've got the only copy in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> What's next for you? I've written a novel set in the future, which has greatly confused my publishers because I'm supposed to be a historical novelist. So I said, don't worry, it's just a history of the future. <laughs> That's about um, a man who's convinced that all our electronic control systems will at some or other, sometime or other fail or be hacked to death and that we'll be back in the dark ages almost overnight. This is something I actually fear myself. Mm. You know, I'm one of these people who hoards cans of meat you know, for when the apocalypse comes. So I, I've got somebody who's, who's um, a quantum cryptographer who, who actually, he knows it can happen because he knows how to do it himself. And so he buys a ruined farmhouse on Bodmin and sets up his survival system for himself and his family. And the, the actual disaster doesn't happen till the last page. So it's not, it's not a, one of these apocalyptic novels, you know. It's, it's mainly about characters. And because there's, he's a quantum cryptographer, there's quite a lot about the weirdness of um, subatomic physics. Where, for example, a switch can be on and off simultaneously, and something can be in two different places at the same time. Do you know what I mean? Uh, quantum physics is really weird. It defies all of our conventional logic. And I, I'm very much afraid that everyone else will be as confused by it as my editor is. <laughs> but I've, tr I've tried to keep the science light, 
There's quite a lot about the nature of time, for example, but I've tried to keep it light and have it mostly driven by character. And like all my novels, really, it's a collection of interlinked short stories. I'm very pleased with it, but I mean, they're not going to give me much money for it. When do we get to read it? Well, they want to bring it out in 2024, which is absurdly distant. But in the meantime, I, I want to write a sequel to um, Bonjour Tristesse. I don't know if you know that novel. Mm -hmm. I love that novel. I always have. I've read it lots of times in French and English. And I keep thinking, what, what happens to Cécile when she's older? So I'm trying to, I've just started a novel where Cécile is having her last fling, you know, with the, with the young man who turns up to do her garden. Will that come out before 2040, do you think? I don't know. It can't, Francois Sagan's books were not big, but they were, they were so beautifully done, I, so full of, of, of sort of elegant detail, and, and it's really, really hard to write like her. So although it's going to be a little book, I think it, I think it could be difficult to do. I've only done one chapter so far, and you just sort of explore it. And I know how it ends. I think it's going to be called Au revoir, Cécile. Yeah, and it's got her aged father in there, you know, who used to be such a playboy. And he's in an armchair with emphysema, hardly able to move, you know. So it's it's quite it's quite tragic, but but it's Cecile getting to the end of her romantic life, and the young man just beginning the arc of his, you know. Louis, thank you very much. Louis de Bernier is published by Vintage, and his works are widely available. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to producer and editor Nora Hull. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or app, from SoundCloud, Mixcloud or iTunes. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>